It's Saturday, March the 12th, and this is your morning briefing from The Economist. Coming up, catch up. Biden warns against sending troops and Russia bans Instagram. First, the week in brief. President Joe Biden reiterated that America will not send troops to fight in Ukraine, saying that doing so would mean a direct confrontation between NATO and Russia, and thus, quote, World War III. America will instead continue to pursue economic punishments. The Department of Justice fleshed out the goals of its new, quote, klepto-capture task force, which will enforce sanctions against Russian oligarchs. It will have a broad remit, targeting banks, cryptocurrency exchanges, accountants, lawyers and more. Earlier on Friday, Mr Biden asked Congress to revoke Russia's, quote, most favoured nation trading status, which would allow tariffs to be imposed on Russian imports. The Russian government blocked Instagram, a social media platform used by some 80 million people in the country. It also announced that it would try to get Instagram's parent company Meta, which also owns Facebook and WhatsApp, designated as an, quote, extremist organisation. On Friday, Meta said it would allow Facebook and Instagram users in certain countries to call for violence against Russians invading Ukraine. Vladimir Zelensky, Ukraine's president, demanded the release of the mayor of Melitopol, a city in the south of the country who has allegedly been kidnapped by Russian soldiers after refusing to cooperate with them. Mr Zelensky said that the abduction was a, quote, crime against democracy itself. In general, though, Mr Zelensky's rhetoric in recent days has been more positive, declaring on Friday that the country was on course for victory. Russian forces stepped up their bombardment of Ukrainian cities on Friday and into Saturday morning. Multiple explosions were reported in Kyiv, the capital, and in Lviv, Lutsk and Ivano-Frankivsk, three cities in western Ukraine, a region Russian forces had yet to bomb with any vigour. Shelling again prevented residents from leaving Mariupol, the southern eastern city that had been under siege for days. Nearly 1,600 civilians have died there, according to Ukrainian officials. A new evacuation attempt is planned for Saturday. Meanwhile, the huge convoy of Russian tanks approaching Kyiv appears to have, quote, dispersed and redeployed, according to a satellite imaging company, raising fears they will be used for a new assault on the city. The UN's Human Rights Office said it had seen, quote, credible reports of Russian forces using cluster bombs in populated areas, which could constitute war crimes. Western observers are also getting increasingly concerned that the country will resort to the use of chemical and other non-conventional weapons. Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, said the country would accept the help of 16,000, quote, volunteers from the Middle East to fight alongside Russian troops. American officials think this might include Syrian fighters, just as Russian mercenaries backed by the Kremlin fought in Syria and Libya. 
There are unconfirmed reports that those mercenaries may be in Ukraine already. Britain warned veterans of its army not to go to Ukraine and warned that serving soldiers fighting in Ukraine would face a court-martial. Other news. Carrie Lam, the leader of Hong Kong, claimed that the amount of fresh food in the territory had returned to pre-pandemic levels. The city is currently experiencing an out-of-control outbreak of COVID-19 cases, one of the worst in any country. Disney said it would stop making political donations in Florida because of new legislation meant to limit discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity in schools. India admitted to accidentally firing a missile into Pakistan this week. It blamed a technical malfunction and said it was relieved no one died. Pakistan told India to make sure it doesn't happen again. And word of the week. Aish Baladi. A gluttonous pitta that's subsidised by the Egyptian government has cost the same price since 1989. And now, here's today's agenda. Mariupol's fate is a warning. Of all the devastation wrought by Russia's nihilistic brand of warfare, Mariupol in Ukraine's southeast has suffered the worst. Before and after satellite photos show a city unrecognisable since troops encircled it on March 2nd, unleashing a combination of shelling and siege tactics. For a week, Mariupol's 430,000 residents were trapped without food, water, electricity or outside communication. The city's mayor said that 1,300 civilians died. The bombing of a children's hospital on March 9th killed three. NGOs have had some luck at getting supplies in since then, but getting people out is harder. For six consecutive days, Russia agreed to a ceasefire only to break it. Does the siege of Mariupol portend similar horrors elsewhere? American officials regard Chernihiv, a city of 300,000 just outside the capital of Kyiv, as, quote, isolated and vulnerable. Russian shelling has cut the city off from gas, electricity and water, says the mayor. And Russian troops are inching closer to Kyiv. Chelsea Football Club takes a knock. The purchase in 2003 of Chelsea, an English football club by Roman Abramovich, a Russian oligarch, transformed sporadic cup winners into perennial title challengers. But then on March 10th, the British government slapped sanctions on the club's boss, saying his, quote, close relationship with Vladimir Putin helped him to amass a fortune estimated at $14 billion. Mr Abramovich's assets in Britain have been frozen, along with almost every source of Chelsea's revenue. The club is banned from trading players and selling new tickets or merchandise. Even before these sanctions, Chelsea had been hemorrhaging money. Income has rarely matched costs, including the wage bill of its star-studded squad. For example, 
Callum Hudson-Odoi, a 21-year-old English Tyro, reportedly gets £6 million, $7.8 million a year. The club has survived and thrived only because of cash injections over the past 10 years of £701 million by Mr Abramovich. The British government does not want the club to go under. But starved of his support, Chelsea's future is in jeopardy. Better forecasting of volcanic eruptions. Volcanologists have one paramount objective, to accurately predict volcanic eruptions. That is exceedingly difficult. They are often lucky if they can give an hour's warning. Their forecasts can spell life or death for the millions of people who live close to more than 40 active volcanoes around the world. But better predictions may be on the way, according to research in the journal Science. Data from the Aleutian volcanoes in Alaska showed that magma, molten rock, with more water, tends to be stored deeper in the Earth's crust. That matters because water contains gas, which triggers and fuels eruptions. Gas is to magma as bubbles are to a fizzy drink. So deeper magmas have more explosive potential. The work should improve eruption forecasting models by taking into account the physics underneath each volcano, rather than just their seismic rumblings or records of their past behaviour. More warning time would be most welcome. The Rivers of Oz Floods across the east coast of Australia have left at least 20 people dead and prompted Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, to declare a national emergency. The Biennale of Sydney will open on Saturday amid the storm waters. Aptly titled Rivers, from the Latin word stream, the exhibition will examine water and mankind's connection to it. Rivers, note the curators, are givers of life and ways of communication. They are sites of nourishment, migration, exchange and coexistence, as well as conquest and destruction. Indeed, rivers is the root of the word rivalry. The work on display by some 60 artists from 33 countries will address those conflicting themes. Indigenous artists from Australia take the spotlight. If we can recognise that a river has a voice, what might they say? asked the curators. As they reckon with catastrophic flooding, Australians are asking themselves much the same question. Weekend Profile Sergei Shoigu, Russia's Defence Minister When Vladimir Putin put his nuclear forces on high alert days after invading Ukraine, he turned to his loyal defence minister, Sergei Shoigu. The Russian army had been the primary instrument of Mr Putin's foreign policy since Mr Shoigu took the job in 2012 and accelerated a modernisation campaign. In Crimea and eastern Ukraine, along the edges of NATO airspace and in Syria, 
Russia projected power with newfound effectiveness. That made Mr Shoigu a trusted voice in Mr Putin's shrinking inner circle and one of a small number of people considered viable successors. Yet the Russian army's bumbling performance in Ukraine has raised questions about Mr Shoigu's future. Now Kremlinologists wonder whether he will become the scapegoat for the operation's shortcomings. Mr Shoigu is much more than Russia's latest defence minister. At 66, three years younger than Mr Putin, he is the longest-serving member of the Russian government. His tenure stretches back to 1990, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, when Mr Putin was still toiling in obscurity in the St Petersburg mayor's office. He first became a minister under Boris Yeltsin and made his name at the Ministry of Emergency Situations, a semi-militarised rescue service with a wide remit that he built himself and led for nearly 22 years. After Mr Putin took power in 2000, Mr Shoigu ingratiated himself, becoming a regular sidekick on Mr Putin's Siberian holidays. As Defence Minister, he ramped up exercises and snap inspections and pushed a glitzy public relations campaign to restore the reputation of an army that had been derided throughout the post-Soviet era. The modernisation efforts, combined with merciless but effective operations in Crimea and Syria, are likely to have fuelled Mr Putin's confidence that Russia could steamroll Ukraine in a matter of days. Instead, Russian forces have become bogged down, resorting to indiscriminate shellings of cities while sustaining heavy casualties of their own. As a child, Mr Shoigu earned the nickname Shaitan, Devil, thanks to a liking for hijinks and risky stunts, such as hopping the ice flows across thawing rivers. The war with Ukraine is Shaitan's riskiest stunt yet. This week's quiz winners. Thank you to everyone who took part in this week's quiz. The winners chosen at random from each continent were Asia, Rakesh Arakeh, Bangalore, India, North America, Rita Fraser, Chicago, America, Central and South America, Cecil Turan, Quito, Ecuador, Europe, Yusuf Muzaji, Slough, Britain. Africa, Madeleine Wakanagal, Narumoru, Kenya. Oceania, Firstin Yazdam Parast, Lane Cove, Australia. They all gave the correct answers of Jerry Springer, The Boxer Rebellion, Newfoundland, King Charles I of England, and The Beagle. The theme is breeds of dog. Springer Spaniel, Boxer, Newfoundland, King Charles Spaniel, Beagle. Finally, here's the quote of the day from Woody Hayes, who died on this day in 1987. Even the best team, without a sound plan, can't score. 
That's it from The Economist Morning Briefing, available every weekday and on Saturdays. You can hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, by searching for The Economist on your podcast app or asking your smart speaker to play the latest Economist podcast. And as a subscriber, you have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app on your mobile device to start listening.